Well, I'm very pleased to say that this year was a momentous one for my family. A major milestone was reached, one that I've been waiting years for. That's because this year my kids finally discovered the Far Side cartoons. Yes, and best of all, they get the humour. And so this year we have spent a lot of time reading them and laughing at them together. Now, if you're not familiar with the Far Side, then, well, seriously, what are you doing with your life? Uh, they, they are the funniest little cartoons, often with recurring characters, one of whom is the devil. He, he's always portrayed in the typical red suit, horns and, and pitchfork kind of way. And he gets up to all sorts of funny antics, like this and this and this and my favourite, this. But as funny as these cartoons are, they're also quite revealing because they show something of how our modern Western culture tends to think of the devil or Satan. You know, as a bit of a joke, a, a comical figure to be laughed at along with anyone who actually believes in him. And that, of course, became abundantly clear back in April this year when Scott Morrison gave a speech at a Christian conference and at one point described the misuse of social media as the work of the evil one. The result? Social media blew up uh, with unabated, hate-filled mockery and derision. Oh, the irony. But whilst there are those in our modern Western culture who laugh at the idea of Satan, in many other cultures, the devil, well, he's no laughing matter. And people live in great fear of him. A Pakistani friend of mine uh, was telling me of how it's common in his country for people to wear certain eye makeup and uh, wear amulets to, to protect themselves from Satan's evil influence. He was also saying that there's this understanding that if, if you, um, uh, that to bring a dog into your house is to, well, invite Satan in with it. Apparently, um, each time you go to the toilet, you, you have to recite certain religious words first. Otherwise, Satan will just follow you in. Kind of reminds me of what it was like when my kids were a lot little. Just, get out, get out. So what are we supposed to think about Satan? Is he laughable? Uh, terrifying? What? Well, today we come to the second chapter of 2 Thessalonians, and in it we'll get to see what the Apostle Paul has to say on the matter. And if you don't already have 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 open in front of you, let me encourage you to turn with me there now. And as you do, let me remind you that 2 Thessalonians is a letter written by Paul to the young church that he'd planted in the city of Thessalonica, probably just a few months earlier. Uh, since his departure, uh, the people of this church have been persecuted for their faith, but they're persevering. More than that, they're growing in their faith and love. In his first chapter, uh, Paul uh, has assured them that the, that the day's coming when Jesus will be revealed as the Lord of all. On that day, those who have refused to believe the gospel will be punished forever. Whilst those who have believed, like the people in this Thessalonian church, well, they will marvel at Jesus and, and share in his glory forever. Well, now, in this next part of the letter, we learn of a particular issue that has shaken these Thessalonian Christians to the core. 
a disturbing rumour has been spreading that, that Jesus has already returned, that the day of the Lord has already come. And worse than that, whoever's spreading this rumour is doing so in Paul's name, passing it off as his teaching. And so now Paul writes to set the record straight. Here, read with me from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching, allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Now, I don't think it takes Einstein to work out why this rumour has rocked the church. I mean, they'd, be, they'd been of the understanding that, that when Jesus came back, all their suffering would finally be over. But now someone's telling them that Jesus has already come back, presumably in some unseen spiritual way. I mean, can you imagine how confusing and upsetting that must have been? It's no doubt left them wondering, what, have we missed out somehow? You know, is this as good as it gets? Will our suffering never end? But Paul assures them that they haven't missed out and that their ongoing persecution is, in fact, proof of that. He goes on to, to frame their suffering in the context of a great rebellion that's taking place, a great insurrection that must run its course before the day of the Lord comes. Then... On that final day, as we learnt last week, Jesus will be revealed and it'll be clear to everyone that he is Lord of all. But now we find out that someone else will also be revealed at that time. Someone Paul calls the man of lawlessness. Now, from his name, uh, we can immediately tell that this is someone who doesn't like to play by God's rules. Um, he's lawless. And it's clear that that he's heading up this rebellion, which is ultimately directed against God. In fact, we're told that his ultimate goal is to usurp God, taking for himself the worship that God alone deserves. But Paul's clear, this man of lawlessness, he won't succeed. His rebellion will be put down, and in the end, he'll be destroyed. Here, look with me at uh, verses three and four. But uh, just before we read them, let me quickly point out that, that uh, whilst the NIV has uh, put verse four in, in future tense, uh, in the original Greek, it, it's actually in present tense. And so you'll, you'll notice me change that as I read. Look with me from verse three, verse three. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day, the day of the Lord, will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He opposes and exalts himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. So Paul explains to these Thessalonians, they're in the middle of a, a worldwide rebellion against God, led by a powerful man of lawlessness, whose ultimate ob objective is to draw people's allegiance away from God to himself. 
But we shouldn't get the wrong idea here. It's not like the man of lawlessness has free reign to do whatever he wants. Now, he's actually being held back or, 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 or restrained, you know, like a, like a vicious dog on a leash. As for the identity of the one restraining him, well, I'm quite certain it was immediately obvious to the Thessalonians who... who they, they would have known exactly who Paul had in mind here, since, since apparently um, he'd spoken with him all, all about this. But since the restrainer isn't actually named in the text, it's, uh, it's led to lots of speculation through the centuries. Some have said it's a God-given governments, you know, as they uphold law and order. Uh, others have said it's, it's God's church as it preaches the gospel. Others have said it's, it's God's angels. But I think it's fair to say that ultimately, it's God himself. It's God who restrains this lawless one, perhaps even using those entities I just mentioned to do so. Yet what is absolutely clear is that this man of lawlessness will continue to be restrained right up until the time of God's choosing. And then... At that time, he'll be revealed, exposed for all to see. At the moment, well, he works in secret, um, largely unseen and unnoticed. In fact, at the moment, it's not even obvious to the vast majority of those who join his rebellion that, that he's their leader. But on the final day, all will be revealed. And on that day... Paul says, the man of lawlessness, he'll be restrained no more. God will let go of the leash, so to speak. Not in order that the lawless one might run amok, you know, wreaking havoc, unhindered, but simply that he might be destroyed. Here, read with me from verse 5. Verse 5. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I, I used to tell you these things. And now you know who, what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendour of his coming. Now these, these verses, they kind of remind me of uh, those times my, my kids scream, Daddy, from another room. And so, so I come running and ask, well, what's the matter, what's the matter? And they, they tell me a, a cockroach has just run under the lounge. And so what do I do? Well, I pull back the lounge and, and, and the cockroach is exposed for all to see. And then, uh, immediately, without hesitation, my, my, my foot comes down and splat. Victory is mine. The, the day of terror is over. And my adoring children bask in the splendour of my magnificence. Okay, maybe I've, I've overstated it a bit, but... But hopefully you get the point. 
And so as, as I understand the passage, the time this man of lawlessness is, is let loose doesn't initiate some special period of tribulation. It doesn't mark the beginning of a, a great cosmic battle between the forces of good and, and evil like some apocalyptic Hollywood movie. Now, as soon as the man of lawlessness is exposed, splat, he's gone. In fact, he won't even get the chance to resist. Just the, the very sight of Jesus will be enough to bring him to his knees. And then Jesus will, will blow him away forever. But of course, the obvious question we're all wanting answered is, who is this man of lawlessness? Well, throughout history, this passage has led many Christians to, to be on the lookout for a particularly evil human man of lawlessness. And so in the Middle Ages, uh, some people said it was Muhammad. Uh, during the Reformation, uh, Martin Luther said that it was the Pope, uh, to which the Pope replied that it was actually Martin Luther. Um, last century, there were people who said it was Hitler, um, other Stalin. And more recently, some have named Donald Trump and Joe Biden, depending on their political leanings, of course. And of course, it is possible for the man of lawlessness to, to work through certain individuals to do terrible things. But I don't think Paul's objective here is for the, the, the Thessalonians to be, to be on the lookout for, for a particularly evil figure who must arise before Jesus can return. In fact, in his other letter to the Thessalonians, Paul is very clear that nothing new needs to happen before Jesus returns. That's why he tells them to prepare now for his coming, which will be totally unexpected, like, like a thief in the night, he says. And so who is this man of lawlessness? Well, I believe Paul has in mind none other than Satan himself. He is, after all, the one who tried to get even Jesus to bow down and worship him. The, the one the Bible elsewhere calls uh, the God of this age and the ruler of this world. And ever since the Garden of Eden, he's been the one leading people away from God, using lies to trick and deceive people into following him. Now Paul says that, unsurprisingly, the man of lawlessness acts just like that, even using signs and wonders to lure people onto his side, promising that sin will bring them happiness and freedom. But it's a deception, a lie. In the end, sin brings only heartache and destruction. But that's not to say that those who believe Satan's lies are innocent victims here. Not at all. Now, just like Adam and Eve before them, they refused to believe God's truth, choosing Satan's lies instead, because quite simply, they're what they want to hear. You know, it's a little bit like me and chocolate. I really like chocolate. You know, I, I can read all about how unhealthy chocolate is. And I can watch The Biggest Loser and hear from contestants how much they regret eating too much chocolate. And, and I can see for myself on the packaging the huge number of calories contained within. But I tell you, 
All it takes is that ad to come on TV telling me that there's a glass and a half of full cream dairy milk in every block, which I take to mean means that it's actually good for me. And, you know, suddenly I transform into Augustus Gloop from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And isn't that the way it often is with us? When, when deep in our hearts we desire something sinful, you know, we, we will seek out the voices telling us to go for it. And that's how it is when it comes to people believing Satan's lies. They believe him because they want to believe him. As for God, well, he's hardly wringing his hands helplessly while all of this goes on. Now, when people are hell-bent on rejecting him, he'll generally oblige them, hardening their hearts as they follow their evil master all the way to hell. Here, read with me from verse 9. Verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is, again, present, not future, is in accordance with how Satan works. He uses all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. And all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. And so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth, but have delighted in wickedness. And so what is really clear here is God is, is sovereign from beginning to end. He has complete control over Satan. He has complete control over the rebels who choose to follow him. And now, in the final part of this, today's passage, we see that he has complete control over the people of this little church in Thessalonica too. In fact, Paul says he can't help but be thankful to God because in his sovereign grace and love, God chose to save these Thessalonians. He, he sent his spirit to work in their hearts, causing them to believe the truth about Jesus rather than the lies of Satan. And Paul is so thankful that God continues to work in them too strengthening them to now live for Jesus. And so with his help, all they've got to now do is, 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 is keep believing, holding, holding fast to the truth and ignoring the lies of Satan, including that disturbing rumour that Jesus has already come. Now, the day of the Lord is yet to come. That, that's the truth. And because of God's sovereign grace in the lives of these Thessalonians, they will now share with Jesus the glory of his victory on that day. And so Paul appropriately finishes this second part of the letter by praying that their, that their hearts will be filled with encouragement and hope. Here, read with me these final verses uh, from verse 13. Verse 13. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord. Because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Well, no wonder Paul feels compelled to thank God. These Thessalonians were hell-bound. But in his sovereign, loving intervention, God has guided them to belief and obedience. So instead of facing eternal destruction, they're now headed for eternal glory. And with that, we reach the end of today's passage. So what have we seen? Well, Paul assures the Thessalonians that the day of the Lord has not yet come. Their suffering is proof of that. For now, Satan lies and deceives people into his wicked ways. But God holds him back and uses him for his own good purposes. In the end, Satan will be destroyed, along with all who follow him. But those who hold on to the truth, enabled by God's sovereign grace, well, they will be saved. And so we now come back to our original question about how we should think about Satan. Well, I think there are three very clear points that come from this passage. And they ask that Satan is real, that Satan is restrained, and that Satan is doomed. Firstly, Satan is real. And obviously, so, so much more than, you know, a, a comical cartoon character. He is very real. And ever since the Garden of Eden, his objective has been to usurp God. But he's hardly getting around, you know, in some red suit and horns and a, and a pitchfork for all to see. In fact, we have absolutely no idea what Satan looks like. Why? Well, because as we've seen today for now, he's hidden. He works in secret. He, he's unseen. And so it shouldn't surprise us when people find his existence laughable and mock those who do believe in him. As someone once said, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he doesn't exist. I like the way a Christian singer Keith Green um, has put it in a song of his. and He wrote a clever song from, from the devil's perspective. And uh, this is what he says. He says, I'm gaining power by the hour. They're falling by the score. You know, it's getting very simple now because no one believes in me anymore. I used to have to sneak around, but now they just open their doors. You know, no one's watching for my tricks because no one believes in me anymore. Satan is real but unseen. Only on the final day will he be revealed to all. And sadly, only then will his followers realise that they've been completely duped. You, they'll say, you, 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 you tricked me. But then it'll be too late. In the meantime, uh, those with eyes to see recognise the devil's handiwork everywhere as he destroys lives and relationships. Friend, don't be tricked by Satan, will you? His lies will ruin your life and send you to hell. 
What we need more than anything else is the truth, God's truth from the Bible. We need to hear it and we need to heed it. And yet, sadly, there are people I know, people I know and love, even people in our church, people who, who know the gospel. Some of them, you know, they even come to church every week. They hear the Bible read every week. They hear the sermon preached every week. But they do not respond, not realising the danger they're in. Because frankly speaking, there is no more perilous condition for a person than to know God's truth and continually refuse to obey it. (sighs) Persist in that way, friend. And sooner or later, God may just give you over to your unbelief, to your eternal regret. Please don't go there. Please don't continue in stubborn unbelief, but turn to Jesus today in faith and repentance. He, He wants to save you. Satan wants to destroy you. He'll tell you, no, 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 don't listen to him. Not today. No, no, another day, maybe, maybe, but not today. Don't do it. Just, just, just nod and smile. Nod and smile. Turn your Zoom screen off quick. Don't listen to him. He's a liar. Listen to Jesus and be saved. Satan is real. That's the first point. Secondly, Satan is restrained. It's interesting, isn't it, how often Satan is presented as as Jesus' arch nemesis in some evenly matched title fight where where it's unclear who will win in the ultimate battle of good versus evil. But this passage makes it clear that there's no contest at all. Because as Martin Luther famously said, the devil is God's devil. You see, that's why God is able to restrain wickedness in our world. You reckon the world's got problems now? (laughs) Imagine what it would be like if God weren't holding Satan back. The fact is, believe it or not, the world is not as bad as it could be. People aren't as bad as they could be. Evil does not have free reign. In fact, in our messed up world, good things still happen. Kind people give up their seats for the elderly on buses. People donate money to help bushfire victims. Courageous judges bring powerful criminals to justice. Good things do happen in our world. And and we can thank God for that because, because he's restraining evil. Surely that's a great motivation for us to pray, isn't it? Because, you know, God can actually do something about the mess we see around us. So let's pray, let's pray, let's pray that God will bring an end to war in Yemen. Let's pray that the Taliban members will turn to Jesus. Let's, let's intercede for persecuted Christians in North Korea. Let's pray because God's the one who can do something about the wickedness in these places. And as we give thanks that God's holding back evil out there, let's not forget 
what he's doing in here too, in, in, amongst us. Because as we've seen today, the only difference between them and, and us is God's grace and kindness. Friends, we don't deserve heaven. Now, just like the world around us, our hearts are inclined towards sin, towards wickedness. But God has saved us. In his grace and love, he has rescued us from the clutches of Satan and made us his own dear children. Day by day, he's teaching us to, to hate what's evil and love what's good. And through his spirit, he is strengthening us in every good, we, every good deed and word. It is all him. So be sure to thank him, won't you? That's point two. Satan, though real, is restrained. Restrained out there, restrained in here too. And third and finally, this passage teaches us that Satan is doomed. He won't win. He will be destroyed. Again, it's funny, isn't it, that there's this popular idea of Satan as, as the ruler of hell where he gets to have lots of fun tormenting people. But in actual fact, hell is the place reserved for his eternal destruction. There, there he will not bother God's people ever again. All the suffering and, and pain we see in the world, all the suffering and pain we experience in our lives will end once and for all. Oh, what a joyful thought that is. So don't be tricked, will you? you know, cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you that Jesus has already returned in some spiritual way. And uh, the Eastern Lightning Cult will tell you that Jesus has come back and now lives as a, a woman in China. Don't believe them. Don't believe them. We know what happens when Jesus returns. Every eye will see his glory and Satan will be destroyed. Clearly that's not happened yet. But it most definitely will. For not only is Satan real and restrained, he's also doomed. Because of Jesus, friends, we now look forward to an eternity free from wickedness and all the suffering it causes. So friends, let's be filled with encouragement and good hope as we wait for him. So how should we think about Satan? Is he laughable? Terrifying? What? Well, I've mentioned Martin Luther a couple of times in this talk. So I'm going to give the last word to, to a hymn he wrote. A mighty fortress is our God. Which, you know, I think it just sums it up so beautifully. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. 
one little word shall fell him. Let's pray. Father, we know that Satan is real, but we also know that he's restrained and doomed. So, Father, please help us to recognise Satan's lies for what they are. Please continue to hold back wickedness in our world and in us too. And as we wait for our Saviour's return and final victory, please help us to live for him, filled with encouragement and hope. In Jesus' name, amen.